my voice the way that it is, but that's what microphones are for. They'll, uh, they'll keep me loud enough for you to hear, I'm sure. <clears throat> At some point, it'll break free, I know, and then I'll be really loud, so don't turn me up too much. But uh, let's turn to the book of Matthew. We're going to go back to our series of study. It's now been several weeks, in fact, probably close to a month since we last dealt with this subject, but I told you several months ago that I had been feeling the need because it has been, I've been, I've been teaching it all over the country, been teaching it in Africa, but it's just been several years since I've taught it right here at home, and uh, just really felt like it was time to come back and, and uh, address it again and deal with it. I don't ever want us to lose this truth. Nor do I want us to lose our appreciation for this truth. I don't want us to ever get to a place we are tired of hearing this truth. Amen. You know, we, we've talked about, and I know you're standing, but we, we've talked about in previous lessons and even in other messages how important Deuteronomy 6 and 4 is to the Jews and how to them, and even according to Jesus, it is the most important verse in all the Bible. But I don't know if we understand why it's the most important verse. You see, the reason why it is so important that we believe Deuteronomy 6 and 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, is because that is the thing that really sets God's people apart from the rest of the world. That's the determining factor. Now, now listen, for the Jews, every other nation on earth worshipped more than one God. And so, to them, to be able to say, we don't need a God of the sun and a God of the moon and a God of the water. and We don't need all of that. We have one God who created everything. That was a distinguishing factor for them. And I'm telling you that we find ourselves today in the same situation. Because even most of Christianity, while they claim to believe in one God, they have divided that one God into three separate persons. And so the message that there is truly only one, not three in one, but only one, is still the message that sets us apart from everybody. This is the distinguishing factor for us. And everything else we believe is based on this. Why do we baptize in Jesus' name? Because there's only one God. We're not baptizing in the name of the second person of the Trinity. We're baptizing in the only saving name. For neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name. Now, if there are three persons, what happens to the names of the other two? But there's only one saving name because there's only one God. Well, hallelujah. And so this is such a crucial thing. And I'm telling you, please hear me, church, when I tell you. Because I know that when 
when we have a situation where you're raised in a in a church where it's taught and and you spend all your time in the church where it's taught you you don't realize what's going on outside these four walls but please hear me and believe me when i tell you that even in the apostolic realms people are deviating from this message they're deviating from this message I'm not here to throw stones at anybody, but but hear me. I'm going to let you be seated in a moment. I just want to stress to you how important this is. But even, even right now, a major organization that calls themselves apostolic is teaching, is teaching their young people in a series of lessons principles that are contrary to the message of one God. They're teaching things that contradict the Scripture. I'm telling you, it's going on, and we've got to get a hold of this. I'm not wasting my time in teaching this over and over and over and over. Because you're going to have fellowship with others that are going to have strange ideas about it all. But I want it settled in your heart and in your mind and in your spirit. Not this is what our church teaches, or this is what my pastor teaches, but this is what the Word of God declares. Hallelujah. It's got to be settled. You've got to have a revelation. I can't say that enough. It's not enough to have an understanding. You've got to have a divine revelation. You've got to let God open your understanding in this situation. It's got to be a touch from on high. And listen to me. If you ever get a revelation, nobody will ever convince you of anything else. And if you've ever had moments when reading the Scripture or talking to someone, it caused you to question what we believe, that's a sure sign you don't have a revelation. You need one. You need a revelation. And I want God to send that spirit of revelation right here into this sanctuary today to anybody and everybody who needs it. Well, praise God. Are you going to help me this morning, church? Hallelujah. Amen. Matthew chapter 16. We begin with verse number 13. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I call your attention uh, today to uh, the question that Jesus asked his disciples 
Two questions, actually. First of all, whom do men say that I am? And that's a valid question. And that's why we've got to have a clear understanding. Because so many people have so many different opinions about him. But then the second question is the most crucial. And that is, whom do you say that I am? And this is the all-important question. Who do you say that he is? Do you understand who he really is? Do you have a revelation? And that's what Jesus said to Peter. You're a blessed man because flesh and blood didn't give you this revelation. This revelation came by the Spirit. Amen. Hallelujah. That's what we want to happen even today as we continue on. This is our fourth Lesson in this series on the Godhead. And we will do a bit of review because it's been so long. Uh, But uh, let's pray first. Let's ask the Lord to help us today. And would you join me, church, in praying that God would send revelation to anyone who needs it. And if there are any of those listening online or will listen online, God will send revelation to them as well. Let's pray together right now. Can we lift our voices and ask the Lord to help us? In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, praise God. God bless you. You may be seated. Amen. Let me let me do some review this morning. I don't want to take too long, and yet I know that uh, uh, those who have not heard the previous lessons, what I'm going to deal with today is really not going to make any sense if you don't have what we've dealt with in the three lessons prior. And so I've got to go back and deal with these things. Uh, as I said, it is, uh, it is important for us to have a true understanding, yea, revelation of who Jesus really is. Because there are so many differing ideas and definitions of him, even uh, among the Christian world. Listen to me, church. Listen to me. This is not a matter of semantics. This is not a matter of they say it one way and we say it another. But we believe the same thing. No, we do not. All right? We've got to understand who he really is. And so we have been spending these weeks dealing with this. Uh, The common definition of God is that God is the Holy Trinity. Three separate and distinct persons who are co-equal, co-eternal, and co-existent. 
And uh, I, I talked to you about how difficult it is to really even comprehend their definition of the Trinity. In fact, uh, I read to you statements by their own scholars. These are not things that I've said. This is not something that I've made up to try to make fun of them. This is what they say. You can look it up for yourself. But the one of their own scholars made the statement. He said, uh, he said, if you deny the Trinity, you'll lose your soul. But if you try to explain it, you'll lose your mind. Now, that's the way they look at it. They believe you can't even be saved if you don't believe in the Trinity. But yet they also believe there's no way you can understand the Trinity. Now, that's what they say. I'm not making fun of them. That's what they say. They say it is a mystery beyond comprehension. I'm here to tell you the Godhead is not a mystery beyond comprehension. The Godhead can be understood. In fact, read for me again Romans chapter 1 verse 20. There's a reason why I left this verse in and probably will leave it in for a while. It's important that everybody get this verse. If you make notes in your Bible, this is a verse that you ought to have some kind of notation by. You ought to have it circled, underlined, something. So you can find this the next time you talk to somebody about the Godhead. What did Paul say? Romans chapter 1 verse 20. For the invisible things, the invisible of, things him, of Him from the creation, from the creation of, the world, of the world are what? Are clearly are, seen. Wait a minute. Are what? Clearly seen. Help me, church. Are what? I'm trying to help feel the Holy Ghost. I feel like God's going to do something today. Amen. Yeah. They are what? Clearly seen. They are clearly seen. Clearly seen. All right? Being understood. Being, wait a minute. Being what? Understood. Being what? Understood. Come on, church. Being what? Understood. He said they're clearly seen. They are understood by the things, by the things that, that are, are made. made. Now, what things are clearly seen and understood? Even his eternal his power, eternal and, power and his Godhead. His Godhead is clearly seen. His Godhead is understood. It is not a mystery. Amen. In fact, what did he say? So that they are they without, are without excuse. excuse. Paul said this is so clearly seen. This is so easily understood. There is absolutely no excuse for not seeing it and understanding it. Right. It's that simple. The only reason it's complicated is if you're trying to believe what man devised. But if you'll take the Word of God, hear me. The Bible is not hard to understand. Right. Amen. Now, some King James English is hard to understand. Right. I'll give you that. Sometimes the, the language of that century is difficult for us to comprehend. But the Bible and its message is not hard to understand. Right. Nothing that God did. Listen. Listen, we've just come through the Christmas season, and, and I know he wasn't born on December 25th, but most of the world is thinking about his birth, at least on that day. So be that as it may. Here, here's the deal. What we understand is when he was born, he did not come as a king. He did not come as a conqueror. He did not come as somebody rich and powerful and famous, but he came to the lowest of the low. 
Now, that's the way our God always operates. And I'm telling you, he did not put together a book that you've got to have 20 degrees to understand. He did not give, oh, I feel the Holy Ghost. He did not give us a book that you've got to devote your whole life to, to, to theological studies in order to get a comprehension of what it's all about. That's not the kind of God we serve. He didn't come for the intellectual. He came for everybody. The lowest of the low, the simplest of the simple, the poorest of the poor. He is as much reaching for them as he is anybody. And so I'm telling you, the Bible really, it's not the Bible that's hard to understand. It really is just the language barrier that we're dealing with. We are, we are more than 400 years removed from the Bible being put into King James English. And, and I know many folks are moving to other translations, and we're still stuck in the mud here, and, and they're still hanging around the King James. There's a reason for that. There's a reason for it. Uh, it's because the other translations, many of them are based on different manuscripts and, uh, and leave verses of Scripture out or change entire meanings of Scriptures. I'm not interested in that. I mean, I mean, many verses from the last chapter of Mark are not even in most of the modern English translations. And you think about what all said in, in the last few verses of, of Mark 16. These signs shall follow them that believe. Right? I mean, there's some important verses there, and they've just thrown them away altogether. I'm not interested in that. So I'll stay with what we've got. We're just going to have to work a little harder. Well, praise God. But I'm telling you, there's no excuse for not understanding the Godhead. It is so simple. It is so concise. Everybody ought to be able to understand it. Everybody ought to be able to grasp it and comprehend it. There is no excuse. And so I started out some weeks ago presenting to you four Bible principles that explain the Godhead entirely and completely. And this is something I feel like God gave to me. I didn't get it off a chart somewhere. But, but in, in, in the work that I'm doing in Africa, this is, this is what I feel like God gave to me. And it makes it so simple and so easy to understand. And it's all based on scriptures of the Word of God. And that's the way everything we preach and teach ought to be. It ought to all be based on the Bible. I don't have to go to the Athanasian Creed. I don't have to go to the Antinicene Fathers. I don't have to go to, 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 to any of those uh, men outside of the Scripture. Whatever I believe, I'm going to prove it from that book. Well, praise God. That's the way we ought to do it. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to give you and have been giving you principles that make it easy for you to understand the Godhead. Principle number one came to us from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength. All right, now, here's the reason I include verse 5 in this is because if you look at the end of verse 4 in your Bible, uh, you'll see that verses 4 and 5 is all one sentence. 
uh, in the book of Matthew, when Jesus was asked what is the greatest of all the commandments, uh, Matthew chose to only record the last part of that sentence. But it was because Matthew was writing to Jewish people and the Jews knew what the rest of the sentence was. When Mark recorded that same story, Mark chose to include the entire sentence because Mark was writing to Romans who believed in many gods. And it was important for those Romans to get the entire sentence. But here's my point. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment in all of the Word of God? He did not hesitate. He didn't have to think about it. His answer was quick and it was clear. The greatest of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, and all thy might. That's the number one commandment of everything. That's above everything else. Nothing else is greater than that one. Alright? So principle number one comes from this. And the first principle is that there is only one God. Alright? We can't argue that point. We can't debate that point. Now, most people who believe in a trinity will tell you they believe in only one God, but that one God is three persons. So we'll get to that later on. But here is uh, what I'm conveying to you is the first principle we must all accept and agree upon is that there is only one God. That's got to be the end of our discussion. Where Whatever we're going to look at, whatever other things we're going to consider, we cannot make more than one God out of it. There has to be only one. All right, so that's that's principle number one that there's only one God. Principle number two comes from John four and twenty four, and again I, I went through all these and I would encourage you if you missed any of these lessons, please please uh, stop by the sound booth. Let our sound man know. We'll provide you with CDs. Um, or, or you can go on the website and find them there. The lessons are all there, but we'll get you the recordings. You need to go back and listen because I just dealt with principle number one in a matter of about 60 seconds, and uh, I spent a whole week on principle number one. So you need to go back and hear everything included with it so that I can uh, confirm in your mind that that truly is principle number one, all right? So I'm going through these quickly until we get to where I want to be today. Principle number two comes from the book of John. John chapter 4. Now, uh, i tell you what, get your Bible, and let's, let's do what we did before, and, uh, and get John 4, and let's start with verse 23. Uh, I've got verse 24. That is the key, print, the, the key verse here for principle 2. But I want to start with verse 23 so that we all understand the context. All right, verse 23, John 4, 23, Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well, and here's what he says. But the hour cometh. The hour is coming. And now is. And it now is. When the true worshipers when the true worshipers shall worship. Shall worship now, wait a minute. Shall worship whom? Father. Hello? Shall worship whom? Father. All right, they shall worship the Father. Everyone say the Father. Jesus is talking about the Father. Right? They shall worship whom? The Father. All right, they're going to worship Him how? In spirit, in spirit and in truth. And in truth? For the Father. For, wait a minute. Wait, for who? The Father. For who? The Father. Help me here, church. For who? The Father. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. So the topic in verse 23, the subject is the Father. 
It's the Father. That's the one to whom he is referring. All right, that's verse 23. We get to verse 24, and he says, God is a spirit. God is a spirit. And they that worship him him must worship him. him. How? In spirit and truth. There is a connection. In verse 23, Jesus called him the Father. In verse 24, Jesus called him God. But when we read God in verse 24, we've got to understand this is not talking about God the Trinity. This is talking about God the Father. All right? Jesus defined that for us. Everybody see that? That's the topic. When he uses the word God, he's talking about the Father. Because in verse 23, he said the Father's looking for people to worship him in spirit and truth. So then he says in verse 24 that if you're going to worship God, you've got to worship spirit and truth. So when he says God, he's talking about the Father. Now, with that understanding, look at the first few words of verse 24 again. And Jesus says, God, or the Father, is a spirit. All right. Here's problem number one with the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity says that the Father is the first person of the Godhead. Jesus did not say the Father is the first person of the Godhead. In fact, Jesus did not say the Father is a person in the Godhead. In fact, he didn't even say that the Father is a person, period. He said the Father is a Spirit. Now, there's a big difference between a spirit and a person. And we all know that difference. And we understand that difference. So when we start calling the Father a person, we've got an immediate problem. I'm telling you, it's an insult to call the Father a person. He's not a person. He's bigger. He's stronger. He's more powerful. He's more wise. You can't fit what God is into the definition of a person. The Father is not a person. He is a spirit. Now, that's crucial. And we've got to understand that and we've got to accept it. And I went through some things about the Father being a spirit. The reason why we can't look at him as a person. And this is this is the, the whole problem here. We get this picture of, of the father as an old man in long flowing robes and long white hair and long white beard and he's sitting on the throne. That's not the father. That may be the way you picture him, but that's not the father. Because the first thing we learned about the father is that he is omnipresent. That's just a big word that means he is everywhere. He's not confined to a throne. The Father is not confined. In fact, do you know what the Father said about His throne? He said, heaven is my throne. Not my throne is in heaven, but heaven is my throne. And the earth is my footstool. So when we talk about the Father, we're talking about a spirit that is everywhere. There is nowhere that the Father is not. The heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. 
That's what the scripture says. We talked about all that in the week that we dealt with principle number two. He is an omnipresent or a, a, a spirit that is present everywhere. All right? So a person can't be everywhere. A person is limited to one place. But the Father's not a person. He's a spirit and he's everywhere. Alright, he's not only an omnipresent spirit, but something else that we have found in the scriptures is that he is an immortal spirit. Now again, I didn't say immoral, I said immortal. That simply means he's everlasting. From everlasting to everlasting. God the Father had no beginning and he has no end. He has always been and he will always be. That's the Father. A person has a beginning and an end. But the Father does not. Hallelujah. The Father can't die. Because the Father is a a spirit. Spirits don't die. The Father is a spirit. He is everlasting. The third thing that we learned about this spirit is that he is invisible. Scripture repeatedly states no man has seen God at any time. Nobody has seen God. Nobody has seen God. All right, now, listen. They may have seen an appearance whereby God revealed himself, but they didn't see God. There were times in the Old Testament when he appeared to men, but he appeared in a form. But that wasn't God. It was his form. All right? Uh, I, I don't know. The best way that I can, and I try to keep everything simple. I try to keep it on the lowest possible denominator in my explanation. So the best way that I can try to relate it to you is like when you're talking to somebody on FaceTime. You see them, and you say, I'm talking to them, and you are. But you're not really seeing them. You're seeing their image, which has been digitally um, broadcast to you. But you're not really seeing them. God created temporary images that people saw, but they never saw God. No man has ever seen God. We read it. You can go get the, get the recordings. We went through many, many scriptures. In fact, the Apostle Paul made the statement that no man can see God. Not only has nobody ever seen him, nobody is able to see him. It's not even possible. And that only makes sense if God is everywhere. There's no way you could see something that's everywhere. If you could see the air today, you wouldn't be able to see anything else. Because the air is everywhere. God is everywhere. You can't see what is everywhere. And so, the Apostle Paul said, no man has seen God and no man can see God. And I pointed out to you when we taught that lesson, he was present when Stephen was put to death. And when Stephen had his vision, and he looked up into the heavens, 
And the Bible said he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Here's what I'm going to tell you. If we're going to let, if we're going to believe that there are no contradictions in the Bible, then Stephen did not see Jesus and God. Because no man can see God and no man has seen God. Paul was there when Stephen had that vision and it was after that Paul wrote, nobody has ever seen God. Paul knew full well what Stephen claimed to have seen. In fact, who wrote the book of Acts? Does anybody know? Nobody knows? Somebody knows? Thank you. I can always rely on my wife. If nobody else, I can always rely on my wife. All right. So Luke wrote the book of Acts. Luke was Paul's companion. Luke and Paul traveled together. All right? So I'm telling you, Paul may not have heard Stephen say anything. Whatever Stephen did say, Paul heard. But as far as him looking into heaven, but Paul did know what Luke wrote about it. And I'm telling you, Paul, Paul emphasized the fact that nobody, including Stephen, has ever seen God. Stephen, whatever he saw, and we'll get to that in future lessons, but he did not see two persons. He did not. Because he could not. Alright? God's a spirit. He is invisible. You can't see him. The third principle, and this was the, the one we left off with in our last lesson. The third principle, Luke 1 and 35. Let's go there. Luke 1, 35. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. Now, I need to stop you right there. And I know I'm taking a lot of time on review, but this is important. Uh, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. This is what we understand. And it was repeated when the angel appeared to Joseph. The angel was clear that that child which was born of Mary was of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost fathered Jesus Christ. The Holy Ghost fathered Jesus Christ. That makes the Holy Ghost his father. So if the Father's the first person and the Holy Ghost is the third person, we've got a problem. Because Jesus called the first person his father when really it was the third person that fathered him. Meaning he either had two fathers, which he didn't, or he was confused, which he wasn't. Or Holy Ghost is simply another name for the Father. And that's the only explanation we can come up with. In fact, the Father is a... Holy Ghost is a... And the Father is the Holy One of Israel. If He's the Holy One and He is a Spirit, He is therefore the Holy Spirit. It's not two separate persons. It's two different titles for the same one. And I gave this example. I hate to be taking all this time in review, but I feel it's necessary this morning, so bear with me. But, but um, uh, I gave this example, and that is I am a pastor and I am a husband. But I'm careful how I use those titles. I don't step to the pulpit and say, your husband wants you to pray. Nor do I go home and say to my wife, your pastor would like a glass of tea. But the title that I use depends on the relationship that I have at the moment. 
and we understand that I am pastor and I am husband, but I'm not two different people. And God is the Father because He created everything. But He is the Holy Spirit because His Spirit comes to dwell inside of us to make us holy. So it depends. Are we talking about Him as Creator? Or are we talking about Him as the indwelling presence? Same one. No difference. Only a difference in the title of relationship. All right? All right, but now that's not that's not the point. We're, we're going on here. Let's, so he said, the Holy Ghost come upon me, the power of the highest will overshadow thee. And the, therefore also, therefore also that the holy, holy thing, thing which, shall, which be shall be born of thee shall be called, shall be called the, the Son, Son of God. God. And so the angel declared that that which was born of Mary is the Son of God. Only what Mary gave birth to is the Son of God. Mary did not give birth to a spirit. Mary was flesh. And John chapter 3 says, That which is born of the flesh is, and that which is born of the spirit is. So Mary was not a spirit. She couldn't give birth to a spirit. Mary was flesh. She had to give birth to flesh. And that which was born of Mary was called the Son of God. So when we read Father, we think, and when we read Son, we think, it's that simple, church. It's that simple. When we read Father, we're talking about a spirit that's everywhere. But when we read Son, we're talking about humanity. All right? And we went through several verses showing His humanity. We showed uh, how that He was indeed flesh. The many verses that refer to the Son of God. Now listen, this is, I said a while ago, a major organization is now teaching its young people things that are contrary to the principles of, of Scripture. And, and I think I'm going to get into some of that later on in, in a future lesson. So I don't want to deal with it too much today. But one of the things they're telling people is that the Son existed before Bethlehem. That's contrary to everything we believe as one God people. Because that which was born of Mary is the Son of God. And if the Son existed before Bethlehem, Mary had to exist before Bethlehem. We went through the Scripture. The Lord said... To him, this thou art my beloved son, this day have I begotten thee. This day. There was a day in which the Son of God was begotten. There was a day when the Son of God began. Because the Son of God was flesh. Hallelujah. Now we're going to explain all of this in just a moment when I give you for, uh, principle number four. So don't, don't get too confused in all this. But you've got to remember, any passage of Scripture you're reading, when you start reading about the Father, it's the Spirit. You start reading about the Son, it's dealing with His flesh. Alright? As the Son, He felt pain. As the Son, He got hungry. As the Son, He got weary. As the Son, He slept. As the Son, He cried. 
As the son, he suffered. As the son, he died on Calvary. That was his flesh. The spirit didn't die. The spirit did not die. The flesh died. All right? So so we've got to understand that. So principle number one, there's only one God. Principle number two, the Father, God, the Father is a spirit. Principle number three, the Son is the flesh. All right, so we're ready now to move on into principle number four. And uh, I've got, I think, enough time to cover this the way that I need to. So let's take a few moments here and let's go through this. Principle number four comes to us from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 19. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not in putting their trespasses upon them, and hath commanded unto us the world of reconciliation. All right, now look at this. I want you to look at this, church. Look with me here. Help me. All right? Look at this. To wit that God. When we read God, we're talking about the Father. The Father was the... Hallelujah. Let's try that again. The Father was the Spirit. So to wit that the Spirit was in Christ. That's the Son. The Son was the flesh. So here's what 2 Corinthians 5.19 tells us. To wit, or knowing that the Spirit was in the flesh, reconciling the world unto Himself, not themselves. God and Christ, not two different persons. God and Christ, spirit and flesh. And the two of those came together in the incarnation. It made just one. On the outside, he was humanity. But on the inside, he was divinity. God was in Christ. The spirit was in the flesh, reconciling the world to himself. The one and only God that there is. The only God that there is. Listen to me. And I, again, I'm getting ahead of myself. But God didn't look down on us one day and say, I love you so much, I'm sending somebody else to die for you. But what he did, he said, I am a spirit. But you've got to have somebody shed their blood. As a spirit, I don't have blood. But I'm going to get some. I'm going to take on a human form. And I'm coming down there to do it myself. You see, Jesus was both God and man. He was both God and man. Man on the outside. God on the inside. Hallelujah. Praise God. What did Matthew 123 tell us about him? Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. They'll call his name Emmanuel. Which, Which being, being interpreted, interpreted is God with us. not the second person of the Godhead with us. And not even God the Son with us. But God with us. You want to know who Jesus Christ was? He was the human personification of the Spirit that always existed. 
The Spirit took on a body. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God, the Spirit, was manifest in the flesh. That's who Jesus was. He's not a second person in the Godhead. He was God Almighty who took on a human form. And so I'm telling you that at any given moment, Jesus, the man, could act as a man or he could act as God. He could speak as a man or he could speak as God. In fact, I could take you to scriptures where he started out speaking as a man and finished speaking as God. Flesh and spirit were so intertwined in him. They were so fused together, but never confused. Hallelujah. And so we read of him uh, behaving as humanity or behaving as divinity. Speaking as humanity or speaking as divinity. And any passage you read about the man Christ Jesus, you just got to ask yourself, was he acting as God or acting as man? Was he speaking as God or speaking as man? Was this his flesh talking or was it his spirit talking? Hallelujah. And the scripture is so very, very clear about this dual nature that was within Jesus Christ. John 8 and 40. And I'm going to go through these. We don't have time to read them. If if you're taking notes, write them down or else wait and get the recording and write them down then, which is really a better option because I go way too fast for you to try to keep up. But John 8 and 40 calls him a man. But in John 20, 28, Thomas said, my Lord and my God. He was both man and God. The Jews said to him in John chapter 8 that he was not yet 50 years old. And they were right according to the flesh. But later on, the Spirit spoke through him and said, before Abraham was, I am. His flesh was not 50 years old, but his spirit was eternal. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Luke 2.52 says he increased in wisdom and stature, favor with God, favor with man. And yet Peter said in John 21.17, Lord, thou knowest all things. His flesh may have increased in wisdom, but his spirit already knew it all. 2 Corinthians 13.4 describes him as being weak. John 4 and 6 describes him as being weary. And yet in Revelation 1 and 8 he said, I am the Almighty, who is never weak nor weary. This is not two different persons. We're talking about the difference between his flesh and his spirit. Hallelujah. In John chapter 3. In fact, this is not in your, but get, get this for me. John chapter 3, I want to show you something. He's talking to Nicodemus. He's standing on the earth in John chapter 3 and, and verse number 13. Listen to this. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that no man cometh down. No man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven. Even the, even son, the son of man, of man which, is which in heaven. is in. He didn't say which was in heaven. But is in heaven. He starts out talking as a man. He's talking about the Son of Man. But by the time he finishes that sentence, you want to know who's in heaven at that moment? The heavens didn't empty because Jesus came here. Because the heaven and heaven and heavens cannot contain him. 
He was still filling all of the universe, but he had a human body. He was in Christ, but he was also on Christ and with Christ. Because Jesus said, believe you not, that I am in the Father and the Father in me. How is that? I'll tell you how. The Father was in him because the Spirit was in the flesh. But he was in the Father because the flesh was walking in the Spirit. This is not complicated. This is not difficult. Amen. He said to Nicodemus while he was standing on earth, I just want you to know that while we're talking, I am also in heaven at this very moment. Well, hallelujah. He was both God and man. In Luke twenty-two forty-one, we find him praying. And yet in John 14 and 14, he said, if you'll ask anything, I will give it to you. He's the one that answers prayer. How is it that he's praying one moment, but answering prayer another? I'll tell you how. The flesh prayed, but the spirit answers. This is not two persons. This is a dual nature in one person. Look, you've got flesh and you've got spirit. Your flesh is not your spirit. Your spirit is not your flesh. But you're not two different people. I'm going to tell you, I've been in some powerful services where I had worshipped and rejoiced and preached and done whatever until my body was so weary I couldn't hardly even stand up. But in my spirit, I was still strong and wanting more. Can I get a witness? This is not a problem, church. This is not complicated. There's a difference between our spirit and our flesh. But with Jesus, we refer to that flesh as the Son of God. And we refer to that spirit as the Father. Because it was the Father that begat that flesh. It was the Father that caused that flesh to come into being. Oh, hallelujah. Amen. And so, at any given moment, you just ask, is this the Spirit or is this the flesh? When he said the Spirit is willing but the flesh is weak, he spoke as a man. But when he said all power in heaven and earth is mine, he was speaking as God. When he got in the boat and rode across the sea with his disciples, he was acting as a man. But when his disciples were out there without him, and he got on top of the waves of the sea, the Bible said in Job that God alone treadeth the waves of the sea. That wasn't humanity doing that. That was the Spirit inside of him. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. When he said, I thirst, that was his flesh talking. But the Spirit spoke through him and said, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. Oh, praise God. I'm talking about a dual nature. Having a dual nature, he could be both father and son. He was both father and son. Amen. Now you say, that's just not possible. Well, you might want to argue that point with Isaiah. Because I didn't come up with this idea. These are not my words that he's both father and son. Isaiah 9 and 6. What did he say? For unto us a child is born. Wait a minute. Unto us a what? Child. A what? Child. A what? Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son. Unto us a... So we're talking about the Son, right? 
We're talking about the son. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall the government's be going to be on his shoulders. shoulders. And his name shall be called, shall be called Wonderful Counselor. The Mighty God. The Mighty God. Not a Mighty God, but the Mighty God. The Son, thus we're talking about the Son, His name shall be called the Mighty God, the Everlasting, the Father. everlasting Father. It's not a problem with me. It's a problem with Isaiah. If you don't believe that He who was the Son was also the Father. Isaiah said, this is the Son that's coming, but I want you to understand, He's more than just the Son. He is also the Everlasting Father. Oh, praise God. Now look, not just anybody could be both father and son. Not just anybody could fill both of those roles. But he could. Because he was unlike anybody else. You say, how could that be? I'll tell you how. He could be both father and son. The same way he could be both alpha and omega. He could be both father and son the same way he could be both the beginning and the end. He could be both father and son the way, same way he could be both the first and the last. Is anybody hearing me this morning? He could be both father and son the same way he could be the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. Not just anybody can, but he can. He can be both father and son the same way he can be the root of David and the offspring of David. In fact, I don't know of any description that better describes the incarnation, that better describes the oneness of God than that, that he was the root of David and the offspring of David. Think about it. How could he be the root of David? How could he be the cause of David's beginning? Except he be the creator. And yet, he was not just David's creator. He was David's son. Oh, praise God. He was the root and the offspring of David. How? He was the root of David as the spirit and the offspring of David as the flesh. Praise God. Listen, don't tell me he can't be both father and son. I'm telling you, he can also be the lion of the tribe of Judah and the Lamb of God. And again, those are descriptions of the dual nature. He was the Lamb of God because his flesh was sacrificed for us. But he was the lion of the tribe of Judah because he is the conquering king. He could be both father and son in the same way that he was our sacrifice. And the scripture says he is our altar. And the scripture says he's our high priest. Now how could one man be the priest that offers the sacrifice on the altar? And the sacrifice that's offered by the priest on the altar. And the altar on which the sacrifice is offered by the priest. But he can Nobody else can, but he can. Are you hearing me today? We're not talking about two persons. I'm telling you, when you try to divide God into three separate and distinct persons, you do a great injustice to the wonderful God that we serve. He is not three persons. He is not three persons. He is one God. 
He was the Father in creation. He was the Son in redemption. He is the Holy Ghost in regeneration. Not three different persons. Three different offices. Three different titles. But all of them refer to the same one God. Hallelujah. When he assumed a human nature at his incarnation, he did not cease to be God. But now, in addition to being what he always was, he was now also God in flesh. The one God who is spirit took on a robe of flesh called the Son. And my friends, that is the biblical doctrine of the Godhead completely and entirely. It's no more complicated than that. There's only one God. The Father is a spirit. The Son is the flesh. And the Spirit indwelt the flesh. That's the Godhead. Hallelujah. That's all we need to know. That's all we need to understand. I'm telling you. Now look, don't don't get it in your head that I'm up here saying Jesus was his own daddy. That's not what I'm saying. Because I'm saying that the Spirit was the Father of the flesh. Alright? There is a distinction here. And we need to understand that distinction. I I, I mentioned this a while ago. Let's read it. John 14 and 10. Believest thou not that I am in the Father? I am in the Father. And the Father Father is in me. The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself. I'm not speaking of myself. But the Father Father that dwelleth dwelleth in me, me, he's the the one that's doing the work. Now listen, this is the Son of God speaking. He's speaking according to the flesh. And he's explaining to us that the Father, the Spirit, is in me. And I am in the Spirit. And I want you to know that the things that are being done are not being done by the power of my flesh. But they're being done by the power of the Father, which is the... The Spirit that dwells in me. It's the Father in me that's doing the work. Well, hallelujah. Amen. Now listen, and, and let, me just, let me just deal with this, because here's another great fallacy of the doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity says that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three separate and distinct persons, but that they are co-equal. I'm here to tell you the Father and Son are not co-equal. Because the Father is the... You're getting too slow in your response. The Father is the... And the Son is the... I'm telling you, the, the Spirit and the flesh are not equal. They're not equal. In fact, Jesus said as much in John uh, chapter number 14 and verse 28. Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye loved me, you would rejoice. rejoice. Because I said, I, said, I go, unto the, go unto the Father. Now listen to this. For my Father is greater than I. Jesus himself said the Father's greater than the Son. There's no way the Father and Son are co-equal. 
Jesus said the Father's greater. Why is that? Because the Father is the Spirit. The Son is the... So when He said, my Father is greater than I, He's just saying the Spirit's greater than the flesh. That's not complicated. The Spirit has always been, and the Spirit will always be. The Spirit created the flesh. And listen, the flesh that Jesus bore was as much human as the flesh that we bear. It was not divine flesh. It was not superhuman flesh. It was flesh just like ours. And that flesh had no power of its own. That flesh didn't perform miracles. The spirit in him did it. The spirit is greater than the flesh. The flesh died. But the spirit didn't. So when you say that the father and the son are co-equal, again, it's an insult to the father. To say that he is equal to the flesh? Oh, no, he's not. Oh, no, he's not. The Father's not equal to the flesh. The Father's far greater than any fleshly body that has ever been created. Oh, hallelujah. Amen. And so, that's why we don't say the Father is the Son. Because Father means... Come on, help me, church. Father means... And Son means... So we don't say the Father is the Son. That would be saying that the Spirit is the flesh. No, the Spirit was in the flesh. But He who was the Father was the Son. Your flesh and your Spirit are not the same. But you as a person have both. And you're only one person. It's not complicated. It's not complicated. It's not complicated. Praise God. You have flesh and spirit that are distinct from one another. Your flesh and spirit don't make up two people. And so it was with Christ Jesus. His flesh was the Son. It was not the Spirit. The Spirit was the Father. And yet that's not two persons. The Spirit was simply in the the, the flesh. The Father was in the Son. Now, Trinitarians say that Jesus is fully God. And yet they refer to Him as God the Son. I want to ask a question. If He is fully God, is there any title we apply to God that we cannot apply to Jesus? Now, Trinitarians tell you that Jesus is fully God, but He's not God the Father, He's God the Son. So my question is this. If he's fully God, why can't we take one of the titles of God, which is Father, and apply that to him? If we can't take the title Father and apply it to him, then he's not fully God. Now, they, don't, they, they tell you they don't believe in three gods. But I'm telling you, when you really get to looking at the doctrine, that's really what it amounts to. They, they don't, they're taught not to say that. But I'm just telling you, when you've got two separate people that are so distinct that you cannot say that he who is the Son is also the Father, they're different. Then you really have two different gods. Not two different people in one God. Jesus identified himself as the Father. John 14, verse 9. 
Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show me the Father? All right, listen. Jesus is talking, and Philip said, Lord, if you'll just show us the Father, we'll be satisfied. And Jesus looked at him and said, wait a minute. You mean I've been all this time with you and you don't know who I am? When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Church, hear me. I said earlier that throughout the Old Testament, God took on temporary forms. And people saw that form. Jesus was the permanent form of God. He was the image, Colossians says, of the invisible God. When you looked at Jesus, that's all of the Father you're ever going to see. It was the fleshly body that the Father took on. And when Philip said, I want to see the Father, Jesus said, take a good long look, because this is all the Father you'll ever look at. You can't see that invisible, omnipresent spirit, but you can see the body that I've taken on. It's very clear that Jesus was calling himself the Father. And it was the Father that was speaking through him. In fact, in John chapter 10 and verse 30, he had said it as clearly and succinctly as possible. John 10 and 30 says this. I and my Father are one. He didn't say we're like one. He didn't say we agree in one. He didn't say we work together as one. He said, I and my Father are one. Well, praise God. Hallelujah. You know, I, I tell folks, especially the older I get, the more I look in the mirror and see my dad. I, I see his image. I see his face. I see a lot about him. But I'm not the exact replica of my dad. There's similarities. There are things that are alike. But I cannot say when you've seen me, you have seen my father. And I cannot say I and my father are one. We may act alike, talk alike, look alike, but we're not one. But Jesus said, I and my father are one. We're one. We're not two that work together. We are one. Let me show you something. Go to John chapter 8, verse number 24. I said, therefore, unto you. Jesus is talking to the Jews, and he says to them, That ye shall die. You're going to die in your sins. For if, if you believe do not, not believe that I am he, you shall die. You're going to die sins. in your sins. If you don't believe that I am He, you'll die in your sins. Now, when He says I am He, what's He talking about? Who's He talking about? That I am who? Well, first of all, let me just say this: If you've got your Bible open and you're looking at it, the first thing you're going to notice in John eight and twenty four is that the word He appears in italics. In the King James Bible. Anybody looking at it in your Bible? Anybody seeing it? See the word he in italics? Do you know what? When a word is in italics in the King James Bible, you know why it's in italics? It's because the translators thought it needed to be there, but it's not in the original. They thought it would help clarify if they stuck the word there, but it's not in the original. Do you know what the original says? The original says, if you believe not that I am... 
you shall die in your sins. What did he mean by that? The Jews understood the term I am. They understood it better than anybody else. Because way back when they were in Egypt and Moses was called to lead them out, Moses said, who shall I say has sent me? And the voice spoke from the burning bush and said, tell them, I am has sent you. And he said, by this name shall I be known. He said, I want throughout the generations for everybody to recognize that the God of the Jews, the Elohim, the Creator, Adonai, Jehovah, the one God of the Old Testament, I want them to all recognize, I am is my name. And Jesus looked at those Jews and said, unless you believe that I am, you're going to die in your sins. He wasn't claiming to be a second person. In fact, in fact, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says they got so angry about it as this conversation goes on in in John chapter 8 and verse 24. He is telling them, unless you believe that I am. Go down to, you got your Bible? Get your Bible. I didn't put this one in there, I should. I need to adjust my notes and stick this in. But, but that was verse 24. Go to verse 27. He, and just in case you don't understand, that's what he's talking about. Except you believe that I am. Look at verse 27. What does it say? They understood not that he spake to them of the Father. They understood not. He was talking about the Father. They didn't understand. He was talking about the Father. You, he said, unless you believe that I am the Father, you're going to die in your sins. There's no option here. There is no debate here. He's not a second person in the Godhead. Well, hallelujah. Now, let's go on down in that chapter. Go down to verses 56 through 59. Read. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and and was glad. And was glad. Then said the Jews unto him. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. When did Abraham see his day? That's not the son speaking. That's not the flesh speaking. That's the spirit speaking. Abraham saw my day and was glad. Read. Thou art then said the Jews, not yet fifty years You're old. You're not even fifty years old. Has, but you've seen Abraham? Abraham. Read. Jesus said, Jesus to, them, said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was. He wanted to make sure they got it before Abraham was, in fact, in the original. And I don't want to get too bogged down in the original language, but but in the original. We we have something here. If we have any Spanish speakers, you'll understand this. Uh, In Spanish, you can conjugate a verb um, where uh, you can take, for instance, the infinitive amor, uh, which means to love. And you can simply say amo, and that means I love. Am I right? Yeah, thank you. Uh, so, uh, I don't know much, but I know a little bit. I know, I know a little bit. Uh, uh, uh. So, so you, you take that verb, amor, and, and then you, you conjugate it. You can just simply say, amo. Okay? And that means I love. Or, or you can take the verb, ser, at which is to be. All right? And, and you can say, soy. And that means I am. Let's use that one instead, because that's the verb Jesus is using here. But, but you can say soy, 
soy chicano, right? Soy mexicano, whatever. Soy whatever, all right? So, so I, I can say that. Uh, and, and, and it simply means I am whatever I just said, okay? So, so you can do it with just the verb, but you can also emphasize it by adding the word for I, which is yo. Yo soy mexicano. I am Mexican. All right? Yo soy. And that makes it stronger in emphasis than just soy mexicano. Are you following me? When you add the word I, the verb itself implies I. But when you add I in front of it, it emphasizes it. And it's the same thing in the Greek with this. Because Jesus didn't just say, I am in one word. But he said, ego I me. That's two words. And he is, he is emphasizing that he is the I am. So he said to the Jews the second time, they didn't comprehend it. They thought surely he made a mistake when he said the first time, unless you believe I am, you're going to die in your sins. They didn't understand. He was talking about the Father. So he went on to tell them, Abraham was glad to see my day. And they said, you're not even 50 years old. He said, I want to tell you something. Before Abraham was, ego I me. Before Abraham was, I am. They got it this time. What does the next verse say? Then they took then up they stones, took to, up cast stones to cast at him. I'm telling you, they understood fully what it was he was saying then. They said, you just made yourself God. This was their claim. A man has made himself God. No, no, no. You got it backwards. It wasn't a man that made himself God. This was God who had made himself a man. Hallelujah. He wasn't claiming to be a second person in the Godhead. The Jews didn't believe in a second person in the Godhead. The Jews didn't believe Messiah was going to be God's little boy. They didn't believe that. They believed Messiah was going to be Jehovah himself come to them. And that's exactly who Jesus was. Not a second person, but God Almighty. And so principle number four is that God the Spirit was in Christ the flesh. Hallelujah. Amen. I, I'm going I'm to come to a close. Let's go over these four principles uh, very quickly here. Principle number one, there is only one God. Everyone say there's only one God. Principle number two, God the Father is the Spirit. Everyone say that. God the Father is the Spirit. All right, that was kind of disconnected. Let's try it again. God the Father is the Spirit. All right? Christ the Son was flesh. All right? And then principle number four, the Spirit was in the flesh. That's it. You've got a comprehension and an understanding of the Godhead. That's all there is you need to know. You've got it entirely, completely, and succinctly. There is only one God, and His name is Jesus Christ. Listen to me. Listen to me. I said it's an insult to call God the first person of the Trinity. And it is, because God's not even a person. It is also an insult to call Jesus the second person of the Trinity. For Jesus never called himself the second anything. 
At no point did Jesus put himself in second place. He did say in Revelation, I'm skipping one here, I'll come back to it, but in Revelation 22:13, he did say this. I am Alpha I'm and Alpha Omega. And I'm Omega. Now listen, that's Alpha Omega. That's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. It's like saying I am A and Z. And in fact, when somebody said Alpha and Omega, it was more than just A and Z. It really meant A through Z. I'm the first, I'm the last, I'm everything in between. But he never said I'm second. He's the first, he's the last. But he never said he's the second. And so it's an insult to call him the second person of the Trinity. But let me tell you, it's an insult to put Jesus in the Godhead. Now hear me. Jesus is not in the Godhead. Not only is he not the second person in the Godhead, he's not even in the Godhead. Again, you've got it backwards. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 identifies his position with regards to the Godhead. And it's not that Jesus is in the Godhead. Colossians 2 and 9 says, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Not that Jesus is in the Godhead, but that the Godhead is in Jesus. It's all in Him. It's all in Him. The fullness of the Godhead is all in Him. Come on, somebody. Do we believe that around here? I said it's all in Him. It's all in Him. The fullness of the Godhead is all in Him. Hallelujah. If he's the second person, please explain to me why it is that God exalted him and gave him a name that's above every name. That means the name of the second would be higher than the name of the first. That makes no sense. But if there's only one name, and there is, and I started off with Acts 4 and 12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name. This is the name. Whereby he is known. Now, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, and I'm going to close. But I want to show you something. This is not in the notes. But I want to show you something in Isaiah chapter 12. And I'll come back to this. I'm spoiling something that I'm going to take a good deal of time and prove. So just hang on. If you don't agree today, come back and hear some more, and we'll deal with it more. But, but look, we, we've... we've Often heard it said that God didn't really reveal that name until the New Testament. That's not entirely accurate. That's really not entirely accurate. The prophet Isaiah, I think, had the clearest picture of the one who was coming out of all of the prophets. Now, Jeremiah said some great things about him. Ezekiel. There, there were other prophets that dealt with, uh, with, with the one that was to come. No doubt. Daniel did. Daniel talked about him and the kingdom that, that he would establish. But I think Isaiah had the clearest picture of all. And God gave Isaiah a little insight that we overlook because it's been translated into English and we therefore miss what it actually says. So let me just help you here. Go to Isaiah chapter 12. And... and uh, Beginning with verse number 1, I want you just to start reading. Isaiah 12, verse 1. And in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise, Lord, I'll praise thee, thee. Thou ha- that thou hast angry with me. Though you were angry with me, then anger is turned away. Your anger thou- is turned away. 
comfortest me. And you comfortest me. Now, look at verse uh, 2. Behold, God is my salvation. God's my salvation. Read I it. will trust. I'm going to trust. And not be afraid. And not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah. The Lord Jehovah. Read. Is my, is my strength. And my song. He's my song. He also. He also. Is become, is become my salvation. salvation. All right. Those of you that have a strongest concordance, go home and look this up. Go home and look up Isaiah 12 and 2. Look up this word salvation. Here's what you're going to find. It's an interesting word. The Lord Jehovah, we're talking about the God of the Old Testament, is become my, the Hebrew word, Yeshua. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Yeshua. That's the Hebrew form of the name Jesus. This is what Isaiah saw. God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. And he also is become my Jesus. Oh, hallelujah. That's who he is. That's who he is. He's not a second person. He's the only God that ever was and the only God that ever will be. And I'm glad I know who He is today. Let's stand. Lift our hands to the Lord. Oh, I love you, Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. Oh, let's love Him. Let's love Him. Let's love Him. Hallelujah. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Come on, are you glad you know who He is? He also has become my Jesus. He's become my Jesus. He's my strength. He's my song. But He's become my Jesus. Oh, hallelujah. I'm glad I know who He is today. I'm glad I know who He is today. I'm glad I got a revelation of the mighty God in Christ. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Hallelujah. 